0: Right, can you um, just look to somebody next to you and say, thanks for being part of the church today, can you say that? <laughs> thanks for coming today, yeah. I remember uh, some time ago, I, I was uh, reading a comic strip, and the comic strip showed a bunch of cavemen, as a lot of comic strips are wont to do, But well, there's a bunch of cavemen, and they're looking up at a tree, and they were perplexed, as you could tell by the thought bubble with a question mark in it. They're perplexed about some conundrum with this tree. And as they're looking up at the tree, the next uh, slide shows them looking up at a tree with coconuts in it. And they're trying to figure out how to get the coconuts. And so they start throwing things up there and to no avail. They start shaking the tree to no avail, trying to figure out a a a way to do it. And then one of these guys has this great idea as symbolized by him putting his finger up in the air and then a light bulb in his thought bubble. And he remembers a ladder that he had seen somewhere. Wow, this is a great idea. And so he gets all of his buddies to bring this ladder, and so 10 of his friends are carrying this ladder, and they're going to finally get their coconuts. And in the last frame, what you see is rather than them putting the ladder up vertically and sending someone up to get the coconuts from the tree, what they've done is that 10 of them have held it horizontally, placed one man on it, and hoisted him up in order that he might reach up into the tree and pull down the coconuts. It worked in that particular instance, but if that's the way you're going to use a ladder, then more times than not, it will lead to frustration because that's not the way a ladder was meant to be used. An invention reaches its potential when it's used in the way that the inventor designed it to be used. Otherwise, it may work here and there. It may work a little bit, but it's never going to reach the maximum potential the way that the inventor designed it to be. I think the state of marriages these days has led to a lot of frustration. And it's not a flaw in the design, it's a user error. Because we have either forgotten or ignored the teaching of the inventor of marriage. you remember Cavemen didn't invent marriage like this one caveman said, I like this one cavewoman and we're going to do this thing called marriage and it's going to happen. It wasn't like that. wasn't a human invention, wasn't a human institution, but God created marriage from the very beginning of time. He's the one who invented it, and when we push against the designer's intent, yeah, it may work out for a little bit, but it never reaches the full potential, and oftentimes it actually becomes dangerous because we fail to use it in its, uh, in its intended purpose. There's a ton of teachings in scripture, from Genesis until Revelation, from the beginning to the end, written over a period of 1,500 years, many different authors of many different professional backgrounds and many different ethnic backgrounds, written to many different kinds of people in different nations, in different cultures, Roman, Greek, Ephesian, Jewish cultures. But the teaching of scripture from the inventor of marriage is remarkably consistent when it comes to the teaching on marriage. And yet, when you look at the state of marriage, depending on who you ask, some people will say, well, you know, half of marriages end in divorce. I don't know if that's really true or not these days, but that's what people say. One thing we know is that people are getting married later and later and later. Some people are swearing off marriage. Divorce rates are rising and the very fabric of our society is being pulled apart, not because marriage in itself is bad or because it's a, it's, it's a, it's a pessimistic viewpoint about marriage. The, the reason why it's happening is because we've pushed against and we've ignored the teachings of the inventor. And so today, my challenge, I've said this before, you can't say everything about anything or you end up saying nothing. The challenge today is how in one message can we uh, finish up this series called It's Complicated and teach on the biblical teaching of marriage in such a way that would be the most helpful to all of us. What I want to do today is I want to go back to the inventor's design, not to talk about the attitudes and the postures, but to tell you how God designed marriage to be in order that we might realign our lives accordingly. Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to look today, verses 18 through 25. This is the beginning of time. Before sin entered the world, uh, God has created all things, and then we see our introduction uh, to what marriage is supposed to be. Genesis chapter 2, the tail end of creation, we're going to read verses 18 through 25. This is the word of God for the people of God, verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He'd taken out the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, should say the man saying, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. For she was taken out a man. For this reason, man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. And they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This is God's word. So, what do we see? Two things about the design of God for marriage. First thing we see is that husband and wives, okay, this is God's design. Husband and wives are companions, okay, who grow in intimacy every day. Okay, what are husbands and wives supposed to be? What is man and woman supposed to be in the context of marriage? Supposed to be companions who are growing in your intimacy. Not stagnant in your intimacy, but growing in your intimacy. Okay, huge. So we see this. God has created the world. He's created everything in six days. And he's given Adam not only a task, but he's given him this sense of longing. Okay? He, he created this sense of longing within him. Why? Because you look at the days of creation. You know this if you've been in the church long enough. You know that each, after each day of creation, as God creates these binaries, these polar opposites. Okay? Day and night, heaven and earth, sky and sea, sea and land, all of these different things. At the end, he will make man and woman binary, polar opposites, the way the world is meant to work. But after each day of creation, God looks and he says, it's good. Yo, this is good. I like what I've made. In other words, what he says literally in the Hebrew, he says, after he made the first day, he said, yeah, it works. The second day, it works. It works. It works. Everything is good because it's in working order. Everything is good. It's all good. It works. And then all of those It works, it works, it's good, it's good. Comes to a screeching halt in chapter 2, verse 18, where God says, it's not good. It doesn't work. How could this not be good? Isn't it all we need is God? Like God plus nothing equals everything? God says, no, 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 that's not the way it works. It's true that all we need is God, but it's true in a way different than what we might think. Comes to the screeching halt when he says, it doesn't work this way. It's not good. What was not good about it? Here's Adam walking in the garden with God. He's got all the food that he wants. He's doing everything. He's got control of the remote control. Ain't nobody to tell him to turn it off of ESPN. He's doing his own thing with God, and it's perfect. Life is good, but for some reason, God says it's not good. It doesn't work this way. Why? What is he saying? Saying Just like a toy doesn't work without batteries, and just like a body doesn't work with food and water, a human soul does not work in isolation. You need somebody. Here's what, here's what God is not saying. He's not saying, oh my gosh, Adam is all by himself. He needs a, mar- he needs a wife in order to cure his loneliness. This is a cure for loneliness. You got to get married. That's not what he's saying. Because you know in scripture that singleness is just as good a gift as marriage is. So he's not saying, hey, you're single, you're lonely. The cure is to get married. That's not what he's saying. Okay? What he's saying is we don't work when we're not in relationship with someone. We don't work when we're not in companionship. That's growing in intimacy because the way the human soul is created is that we'd be in a companionship relationship with somebody with whom we're growing in intimacy. Adam ain't complaining. God is explaining this is the way we're made. And so he's making that very and abundantly clear. How does he do that? He says, Adam, hey, here's the deal. I made all these animals. I want you to go ahead and name them. Whatever you call it, that's what his name shall be. And so Adam is, is looking at these different animals as they walk up to him, and the Lord is bringing them. God is bringing them to him. And he's looking at these He says, well, that looks like a horse. We'll call it a horse. Calls it a horse, a horse, male horse and a female horse, and he sends them away. Says, oh, you know, they've got stripes. We'll call that one, it looks like a horse, but it's not. We'll call it a zebra and calls it a zebra, male and female zebra. And he shoes them along. And there's these cute ones that are holding hands, and we'll call them otters and otters, beautiful, and they walk along. And, and each of these different... And all of a sudden he's realizing as I see these animals, each of them has a partner. But here I am all alone. And so he thinks, maybe, maybe I just haven't found the right one yet. And so an elephant comes along. And he's like, wow, she's kind of beautiful. But her nose is a little bit too big for me. Elephant go along. And then here comes a giraffe. Oh my gosh, that giraffe is so beautiful in it's spotted glory, but her neck is a little bit too long. I don't believe I could kiss her very well, so sends this one along. All of these animals, there's a gorilla, looks almost like me, a little bit too hairy though. A monkey swinging from tree to tree. They look like, I could have lots of fun with this one, but keeps monkeying around. This is not the right one for me. All of these different animals are coming and he's realizing, you know what? there is nobody for me. And so what does he do? God, the great physician, puts him into surgery, knocks him out with the heaviest kind of anesthesia, so much that he takes out an entire rib from him. And he fashions a woman out of his rib, okay? And he Puts her there, and then it says when Adam wakes up, God brought the woman to him. This is the first wedding. You know, at, at weddings, the father brings the bride to the groom. This is what God is doing. He's bringing Eve right, to Adam and says, here's your woman. So Adam is in this deep sleep, anesthesia's wearing off. He wakes up, and the first thing he sees, he sees this woman. She's unlike the elephants and the giraffes and the hyenas and the frogs and the toads and the turtles and everything else in all of creation. He looks and his response is, whoa, man, what in the world is this? This is crazy. This is unlike anything else. She's like me, but she's different. She's a man, but she has a womb. She will be called a woman. Because she's like me, but she's different. Because she causes a reaction in me that causes my soul to sing, this is now bone of my bones. Literally when it says this is now, he's saying, finally, I found one for me. It's not like all these other ones. He says to Eve, look around. All the other dudes around here are animals. I'm the only one here for you. And so they get together, and he says, this is the one for me. Finally, this is it. See, in your desire, in your longing for companionship in this life, that's not a flaw in the system. This is precisely how you were made. If you feel like I'm lonely, it's not because something is wrong with you. It's because everything is right with you. Do you understand this? If you think I don't need anybody, there's something wrong with you. (laughs) Because it ain't good. It doesn't work this way if you're alone. And so here's what God is saying. I found, I made a woman perfectly for Adam. And so he brings Eve to Adam. And he says, Here you are. So, what do we see about the nature of marriage here? We've established this first thought it's that husband and wife are meant to be companions who grow in intimacy. What does that mean? It says here in verse, uh, verse uh, 23, this, Now, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. It says it right before that, taken from the rib he had taken out of the man, made from the rib he had taken out of the man. What does that mean? Commentators throughout time have said something like this. She was not taken from his head so that she would rule over him, right? Some of us women, you women, think that, right? Wasn't taken out of the man's feet so that he could trample on her. That's what some of us men in here might think. Taken from the side in order that she might be close to his heart and that they might walk together on mission in intimacy, growing together until the end of time. This is what God is saying. You need a companion. This is the first thing about marriage. See, we get married for a lot of different reasons, don't we? Some of us get married because your parents are telling you you got to get married. Some of us get married because of that. And the only reason you got married was to shut my parents up. He's saying that's not the reason you ought to get married. Some of you got married because you wanted status, stability, money. What do we call this in our day? We call them gold diggers. He said, that's not the reason you get married. Some people got married because they wanted to become a citizen of these United States saying whatever reason you got married, here's the reality. If you're not married yet, this is why you ought to get married. You've got to marry a friend, someone who can be a companion with you, with whom you can grow in intimacy day after day after day. It's one of the things I talk to people when they're dating. Hey, I want to marry this dude, I want to marry this girl, but here's the thing, everything is good except yada, yada, yada. If you say everything is good except yada, 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 can I tell you something? Everything ain't good. All right, let's just be honest. A lot of times we want to gloss over every, everything good except They're not a believer. Then everything's not good. Everything's good except he's addicted to drugs. Then it's not all good. Everything's good, but he hadn't been to church in 10 years, but he's still a Christian. No, 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 no. You can't love Jesus and not love his bride. Everything ain't good if everything ain't good. And so what he's saying is, hey, when I talk to people and they say, I want to marry this person, When they go through difficulties, okay, here's what I asked them. I said, if nothing changes in this relationship, are you cool being with them for the next 30 years of your life? Like 40 years of your life? The best years of your life. You're you're 25 right now. You're 35 right now until you're 75 years old. Are you cool waking up to that every day and how annoying he or she might be? Hotness doesn't last 40 more years. You've got to be with a friend, a companion with whom you're going to grow in intimacy day after day after day after day. You've got to marry a friend, not just a looker, not just someone with a lot of money. Cause that's going to be a miserable remainder of your married years. God is saying, hey, this is who you need. This is the kind of person that you need. All of this stuff we talked about, singleness, matters now. When we talked about the things to look for, the fruit of the Spirit of Proverbs 31, a Psalm 1, all of these things, someone that you can grow old with and mature with and you still fall in love with them day by day by day by day. What does that look like? I think this kind of companionship, two things about it. One, there's a permanence to it. He says that they, uh, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Okay? Here's what he's saying. One day your kids are going to up and leave you. Your parents are going to leave you, but this relationship is what lasts. It's a permanent relationship. The two will become one flesh. We talked about this last week. When you have sexual union, the ratification of the marriage covenant is when you have sex. Every time you have sex with your spouse, you are recommitting to your marital vows, saying, I chose you, I chose you alone. It's all of me for all of you, emotional, physical, spiritual, every kind of intimacy, weaving our lives Together, the two becoming one, it's a permanent thing. The first thing is is it's permanent. The second thing, it becomes our priority. Can I ask you, married people, is your marriage your most important relationship on earth, outside of your relationship with God? Because if it's not, can I tell you something? You're pushing against the design of God and working against the way the Creator intended marriage to be. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course my wife is number one. Can I ask you a question? How much time do you spend with her? How much time do you spend with your husband? Not just sitting there watching Netflix, but talking. I'm I'm speaking to myself here. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. When in the midst of that, it's not good, it doesn't work. God did not bring, oh, hey, Adam, here, look, I'm going to give you a mom and dad. That's not what he gave him. He gave him a spouse because a spouse is a relationship that becomes a priority, not your parents. Your wife is not your mama. Your parents are not the priority in your life anymore. You're weaving, leaving them to weave a new life and to cleave together with your spouse. This is your most important relationship on earth apart from God. So can I ask? How much investment are we giving to our marital relationship over and against the hobbies in our lives? Over and against our investment into our children. Our children are going to one day leave us. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother to be united to his wife. Our children are not ultimate. That's not our most important relationship. Children's first premarital counseling session will be a long session that comes from them observing your marriage with your spouse. And they learn everything they need to learn about marriage. Well, the first things, the most important things, they're looking at our marriage. That's the way a man ought to treat a woman. When she doesn't do what's right, he, what does he do? Does he love and embrace her or does he berate her and beat her? See, we're all teaching something. But this is our priority. Your re- marriage relationship becomes your priority relationship on planet Earth. More than any other relationship. So I remember talking with a couple. They'd been married for many, many years, decades. Their children had gone off to, you know, moved out of the home. And for the, the, one of the first times they got together for a date, they were sitting across each other. And the lady said to the man, as she looked at, she said, I can't believe I haven't noticed how much you have aged. I didn't notice the wrinkles. I didn't notice these things on your face. And she said, we have fallen out of priority for one another. But thankfully, I mean, they had, they, they have uh, just a clear sense of, of God's design. And so they're like, yeah, let's, we've got to rebuild this relationship. Because everything about their marriage was about the kids. So when they got together, they had nothing to talk about. You're not the man I married 40 years ago. You're not the woman I married 40 years ago. We look different. Everything is different. But this is still priority number one. And it's got to be for us also. It has got to be our priority. It's why you hear of people, especially like a lot of times you hear this in Asian cultures, (coughs) 30-year-old, 40 years they've been married, Chinese couple, Korean couple, Japanese couple. After 40 years of marriage, they get a divorce. Why? One, because maybe it's less taboo now, but because all of their affection, attention, and investment was on their children. that They don't know who they're married to anymore because it wasn't a priority. When you start out dating, butterflies in your stomach, everything is great, (coughs) it's easy to be in love. Whatever that means to be in love. But it's easy when you're first married. Newlyweds, life is beautiful. Everything is awesome. Give a year honeymoon, two years honeymoon, three years honeymoon. Honeymoon stops maybe when the kids come out, but you got your honeymoon. St- and then the babies come out and all of a sudden we're like, oh, my gosh. And, and women say things like, I just, I just let myself go. Right? I, don't, I don't need to put on makeup anymore. And then all of a sudden things start getting crazy. The man's like, dude, yeah, you know, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm just tired. I'm exhausted. Yeah, yeah, let's just watch, let's just watch TV and fall asleep watching Nick and night. Yeah, marriage is going awesome. And then at the end of it all, they wake up and they're like, holy cow, what happened? We don't love each other. I don't love her. She's different. She changed. He's different. He changed. And then at the end of it, what happened? Oh, we just fell out of of love, Pastor D.L. No, you ain't fall out of love. You fell out of priority. You fell out of trying. (laughs) You fell out of trying because you didn't make this relationship a priority and there's carnage as a result of it. Not just amongst you too, but in other people who are looking to this marriage to see a picture of Christ and the church. I think the great hope is, and I've seen this on countless occasions, that marriages that seem like they were on the ropes, got the standing eight count, could be rekindled Two things that symbolize priority. Time and prayer. Man, you spend time with somebody and you pray for somebody, you give that time, it'd be very hard to not love them, to not want the best for them. One of the best things that we can do, spend time with each other, pray for, with each other. Because God designed marriage to be companions, husband and wife, companions, who are growing in intimacy with each other day by day. First thing. Second thing that we see God also designed, husband and wives, to be co-laborers, co-laborers who impact the world for Christ. A lot of marriages, a lot of weddings, a lot of marriage sermons that I've heard end with that first part, our responsibility to our spouse. But you understand, and I said this yesterday, you understand that marriage is not just locking eyes with each other, it's locking arms and walking towards a common purpose that makes a marriage last it's not just about intimacy it's about impact it's not just about companionship it's about calling it's about co-laboring together for the sake of the gospel can i tell you something your marriage as great as your friendship is will never reach its maximum potential will always feel like it's stagnant if you're not joining together on a mission for the glory of god together because that's how we were made he wasn't just called to Eve, he was called to a mission. Here's your mission, Adam, here's your mission. Genesis 1, 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. How do I do that? How can I be fruitful and multiply? You can't do that alone. You've got to have a co-laborer with you. From the beginning of time, God's saying, hey, this is the way mission is. This is the way marriage is, rather. You've got to have an intimate companionship, but you've got to have an impact-making, co-laboring relationship with your spouse. This is what he's saying. Because there's two wings upon which a marriage soars and flies: it's our mission in the world as well as our marriage and our marriage with each other. So he's saying, how are you going to do that? Here's the deal, guys. Can you, if we can be honest with ourselves, here in, built into creation in every man and every woman is this reality that men were created with a task, but we're created with a need for help. We can't do it alone. Contrary to what we might say when our wife says, why don't you stop and ask somebody for directions, we were created with a need for help. Can I tell you something else about the nature of women? You were created with a need to help. Men with a need for help, women with a need to help, and unless we fulfill that purpose, we will constantly find ourselves frustrated. But when husband and wife lock arms together and say, hey baby, I need your help, hey baby, I'm here to help, then we fulfill the mission of God together, our marriage begins to soar. Some of your marriages are faltering because some of you are not wanting to give your life to the mission of God. And I I think to my... Shame, I I make a lot of mistakes and I've said a lot of stupid things. And at one point I said to a married couple, uh, maybe to, to many married couples, uh, as we are doing premarital counseling, I said, hey, for your first year of marriage, and this was like a misapplication, I believe, of what I thought was a, a great verse. Deuteronomy 24, 5, it says to Jewish men, says, hey, 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 when you get married, don't go off to war for a whole year. For a whole year, you just got to take care of your wife. Build your relationship, build your family. And so what I said was, hey, um, don't get too involved in, in, in serving with Uh, things that require heavy investment, just build your marriage together. And I realized that I was clipping the wings of people who needed to soar on the wings of mission together. As newlyweds or as oldlyweds, find a mission together and give your life to that. Find something that you guys love. Hey, is your husband, he really wants to serve house church together, but you don't want to do it? You pray, and you say, God, help me to get on board with the mission of God so that we can serve faithfully together in this way. Because your marriage is going to take off when you do. Because we're meant to link. You know, when I was in college, I used to go to the gym, first year in college, just go to the gym, play basketball, just random people. Hey, can I get next? Can I run with y'all? And we play together. And four dudes I've never met before, after playing a few games together, we're like BFF, right? Hey, let's go, let's eat, let's hang out, let's do this stuff. I'll meet you tomorrow. And give each other a hug, give each other a dab, and then we go on our way. Because in the mission of locking arms together with a common goal of overcoming the enemy, we find bonding in a way. That's why mission trips, when you you find a motley crew of 11 people who never met each other before and say here's your mission you're going to bring the gospel to a nation of Ecuador you're going to bring the gospel to the inner cities of Tampa you're going to bring the gospel to, to China wherever it is these people 11 people and get together and within within a couple of weeks they can be the best of friends why not because they they Oh, let's do team building. Let's, you know, leapfrog over each other. Let's play, you know, these Korean games. Not because of that, but because they find in their hearts a mission that unifies them together and causes them to say, yeah, together. Isn't that what C.S. Lewis says? it's, It's about not like looking at each other, but looking forward to a common vision that builds the deepest kinds of relationships. And so here Adam and Eve were called to a mission, to a task. And God said, it's when you seek to fulfill this mission together that you find this sense of life and this sense of vibrance, uh, of, of vitality in life. Some of us are doing great with the first wing of marriage, but you feel like you're struggling. Can I suggest to you, let's talk today, not tomorrow, I'm on sabbatical tomorrow, but let's talk today about how you can get involved in serving in the mission of God. There are many ways because the mission of marriage is to be mobilized for the glory of God to change the world for Christ. It's when people realize that marriage is not just about us two and nobody else, let's just keep it insular, but looking outward, that marriage really begins to thrive. I think one of the best pictures of marriage, Ben Stewart wrote in his book, and he kind of does this thing on Acts 18, Priscilla and Aquila in Scripture was a couple who knew that their marriage was not just about, hey, let's have fun, let's, let's have many children, and let's build a great life together. They were tent makers by vocation, and they made a lot of money doing so. But what they did, what they saw as their mission in life was, hey, whatever we have, our home we're going to use for the glory of God. So whether they lived in Ephesus, in Corinth, in Rome, they bounced around to many different places. But every time the Apostle Paul wrote to them, he said, hey, hey, greet Priscilla and Aquila. Say hi to them for me and also greet the church that meets in their home. This is a group of people, two people who said everything about our marriage for the glory of God, even if it meant Risking their lives. Paul wrote that, that they risked their lives for him. On countless occasions, so many ways in which Priscilla and Aquila considered not the things that they owned to be their own, but recognized that the things that they owned were really on loan, and they opened their hands, said, Our home, our food, everything that we have for the glory of God so that the mission of God could be accomplished. What were they? Their career was a tent maker, but their calling was to give everything for the glory of God. Can I... Tent-making was where they got their money. A career is what they got paid for, but a calling is what they were made for. You find your calling in your marriage, and you find that mission together. Because that's when your marriage really begins to soar. It's not just, hey, uh, my wife wants to teach Sunday school, so I'm going to let her teach Sunday school. And while she teaches, I'm going to go and I'm going to hang out with my boys. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you find a mission together. She's teaching. You're praying and you're seeking the Lord and you're fighting for the souls of those young people. You find that mission together. He wants to teach children's ministry, so that means I can go and have my ladies' nights, and we're going to eat our chocolate fondue. No, no, no. He's saying then you love these people. You bake for them. You cook whatever it is that you do for them, but you join in that mission together in order that your marriage will grow and thrive. That's what he's saying. And A lot of times our marriages are falling apart. Because we think it's just about this intimacy relationship. And when that begins to go, we think that there is no other recourse. But he's saying, you are made not only for this intimacy, but you're made for this impact. And that's the purpose of marriage. When I think about Priscilla and Aquila, I think about all the things that they had. And, how, and, and read through Acts 18, do a, a Bible search on Priscilla, Aquila, and you'll see all the things that come out, like wherever they went, Wherever they went, they said, God, we consider these things not our own, everything for the kingdom, everything for the kingdom. So when we have uh, worship services at someone's new home, right, which if you move into a new home, please have your house church shepherd go and have a worship service to bless that home. But if it's a house church shepherd, then I'll go and and I'll I'll share a message with them and I'll usually say something to the effect of, this home is not yours. This is God's. Every blessing you pour out, we turn back to praise so that people could pray, not look at this home and say, oh my gosh, you guys are amazing, you've made it, but to come into their home and say, God is in this place. Now I'm so thankful, we've got so many people within our congregation who are Priscilla's and Aquila's in my mind, who have given of themselves, who say, this stuff is not ours. Whenever there's a pastor, whenever someone needs to come by, hey, let us serve them, let us, this is what they say. There's only two of us in the home, but we bought a four-bedroom house so that we've got two extra rooms so if a missionary comes, they can stay at our home. Countless people have done that. Considering that what they have has been a gift from God, not for us to simply enjoy. The difference between entertaining someone in your home and hospitality at your home is that entertaining people sees the glory of you. (laughs) Hospitality shows the glory of God. When you use your home for the glory of God, that's what they did. Everything we have, our money, our time, our resources, we give it all to you. This is the meaning of the mission of marriage. So a couple weeks ago, we had a retreat for our house church shepherds. And we had some of our Korean-speaking shepherds come and share with us some of their experiences. And there was this one fellow who said, uh, he, he grew up and he had gone astray. He, he grew up in a, in a Christian home, in a very committed home, but... Uh, just a lot of things happened, and he fell off the way. When he came down here, he didn't love God. He didn't love church. He didn't love house church at all. He didn't like his house church shepherd. He came, and he said, I'm going to poke holes in this guy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that what he... Uh, you know, it's not possible for someone to be that nice. Right? Something is wrong with this person. And so this, tro- this uh, self-proclaimed troublemaker started causing trouble to this person. But he said every week my house church shepherd and his wife, they would be so patient with us. They would love us. Every week they would feed us. Every week they would feed us. And I kept trying to find out ways to see that they're fake, that they're not doing it out of a genuine heart, but every time. And he said, now it's been like, I don't know, 10, 10, 12 years. And he said, "I, I still just, whenever I think of how am I supposed to live, he said, I follow him as he follows Christ. But he said, the second year into it, So the second year into it, they were eating dinner at a house church meeting. And he said, I noticed that they didn't have their wedding band on and their engagement ring was gone. And so I said, aha, they must have gotten into a fight. (laughs) They must not not be doing well. And so he kind of slyly asked them, hey, uh, what what happened to your, where's your your wedding ring, your engagement ring? And they just said, "Uh, we sold it. We took it to a pawn shop and they sold it. This troublemaker would later find out that his house church shepherds were um, having a little bit of hard time at work. He was a contracted worker, and contract had run out, and they were kind of in that in-between, and they didn't have money. And Instead of saying, hey, you guys bring food, or hey, we're going to stop house church, he sold and she sold the things that were the most important symbols of their earthly marriage, in order that they could continue to serve people who didn't know Jesus. Like, that's the spirit of Priscilla and Aquila. Everything we have. It's not about how much you have. It's about an attitude. you understand that? It's an attitude, saying, God, I'm willing to get. If, If that means... Some people say, I can't give 10%. 10% is too much for me to give. This is what I say. I think if your boss cut your income down to 90%, you would figure out a way to make it work, would you not? Yeah, I think I I would make it work. It's not about how much or how little we have. It's about the attitude and the posture of our hearts to say, hey, maybe we'll go on less date nights or instead of going to that $1,000 meal at Victoria and Albert's, maybe we'll just go to the golden arches and pretend that everything is made of gold here. As long as we're together, baby, on mission together, that's all we need. You and me forever for the glory of God. But that's the attitude. To look at your husband and wife and say, hey, it's not just about this momentary marriage. Because when Paul writes about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, this is what he says. He says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm actually talking about Christ and his church. In other words, every marriage is a picture of the relationship of Jesus and the church and the way that he sacrificed for his church. Jesus left his glory and his riches behind in order to come down into this broken world so that those who are lost could be brought to heaven. That's the spirit of these house church shepherds who gave up their treasures and the greatest symbol of their earthly momentary marriage. And they gladly did it because they knew that there was a eternal marriage that was coming and they would gladly give up a mere symbol of an earthly marriage in order that others might participate in that eternal marriage marriage this is what it is (laughs) to live on mission as married people for the glory of God to incarnate the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ who didn't look at a bride and say whoa man she's beautiful looked at a broken bride and wow we were sinners Christ died for us in order to make us holy and to wash us with the word and through the waters of rebirth in order that we might one day stand faultless before the throne of God. This is our calling. In our marriage, yeah, that we orient our lives to our companions growing in deeper intimacy and that we live as co-laborers fighting to impact this world for Christ. And for those of us in here who are single, it's the same thing, that you find friends that you could run with, intimate relationships, growing in relationship with them, but not just saying, hey, let's do these things together. Let's go eat at this place. Let's conquer all of the best restaurants in Orlando together, but saying there's a mission. There's a world away. There are people who are dying to know Jesus. Let's go win these people together, and these are the foundations upon which your relationships are built. And when you know the unending love of God in your heart for you, part of his bride, then you become the best husband, the best wife that you can be because out of the overflow of a love that you receive, you're able to love your spouse for the glory of God and for the joy of many people who need to know the hope of Christ and wouldn't see that apart from us. So as we live, may we recommit to this. To get with your husband, your wife, and say, hey, let's live. I want to grow in intimacy. I want to grow in our impact. Let's live for the glory of God. And you do that. You find a friend today and say, hey, let's do that. If you're seeing somebody, if you're with somebody who's not going to help you in that mission of God, then pray about it and say either they change or we got to change. But to do so for the glory of God and for the joy of his work in us, living according to his glorious design. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Whether you're single or whether you're married, why don't we offer up this prayer to the Lord? Say, God, I want to follow you. Thank you for showing us the inventor's great design. Help us now to live it according to the way that you have prepared for us. So let's pray together. Prayer of commitment to the Lord. If you're with your spouse, uh, if you're with your spouse, you can grab a hold of their hand and, and say, yeah, Lord, would you bless us? Growing in intimacy. Growing in our witness, co-laboring for the glory of God. Let's pray like that together for a couple moments. We'll continue to worship the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. Thank you for your word. From the beginning of time, when people have built their lives upon the good news of the inventor's design for marriage, over the past hundreds and hundreds of centuries, on every continent, those who've been captured by this message and lived it out have found. Their marriages to be full of life and everything that they were meant to be. So, Father, we ask that you would reorient our hearts towards you, towards our spouses, towards our friends, towards our future spouses, in order that for the glory of Jesus we might live and give our marriages. Lord, we pray that you would build healthy friendships, healthy marriages within our church, in order that the world would see beautiful pictures of christ and the church the gospel lived out played out from us to the world for the glory of your name we thank you so much we love you because you've loved us first pray these things in jesus name